You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Hollywood for this special edition of the Grown Up Rock Podcast. I decided that we should break out in a cold sweat and earn the right to rock. What do you think about that? Uh, that sounds great. It sounds like those two are connected too, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so in this episode, we spend a little bit of time on the phone with ex-keel guitarist and cold sweat guitarist Mark Ferrari. Mark is most notably known for his time in Keel and his solo band, Cold Sweat. He was the guy with the blonde streak through his hair, kind of like old school Joe Perry, which I always thought was super cool. And it definitely made him kind of stand out, in my opinion, on the rock scene at that point in time, because there weren't a whole lot of guys that kind of had his look. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, the Keel music, I'm still discovering it a little bit. I, I'm not sure I connected to it right away. So now that I've met Ron and now that we've talked to Mark, these guys are too good of guys not to give that stuff another shot. So I know the cold sweat stuff really well, but I don't know the kill stuff that well, to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot of classics. I mean, it was just straight ahead. And in this interview, you know, we had fun with Mark and Mark kind of even pokes fun a little bit at the fact that the word rock was in almost every title because, you know, it was the it was the 80s. That was what it was all about. But Mark is just a super, super talented guy. And we get to talk to him about a lot of this stuff. But our time, there's no way in the amount of time that we had with him that we were able to cover this guy's musical journey because he's had a really super interesting musical journey that you know, Keel and Cold Sweat are just really sort of a part of that, but he's done so much more, especially on the business side of things. He's carved out a really nice life for himself. Yeah, there's uh, probably a handful of musicians in the past 20 years that have started going into, you know, working at uh, sports arenas and doing TV or radio commercials or et cetera. And uh, Mark had actually a pretty big stake in some of that stuff. And this band Medicine Wheel he was in kind of morphed into something else that helped with a publishing company. So, you know, yeah, he's definitely got a rock history there. And it's interesting about the songs that got rock in them. You know, everybody was trying to write an anthem. And I think it was like if the word rock wasn't in it, you couldn't get the anthem right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, just some of his career highlights, like we said, we, he was part of Keel. He co-wrote some of the classics, including uh, Right to Rock. He also wrote a song called Proud to be Loud, which ended up, I think, on like a Keel kind of B-sides or something like that. But uh, that song was re-recorded by a very young band from Texas that you may or may not know called Pantera. And that ended up on their power metal record, which everybody that knows the band Pantera knows they kind of started out as a, a glam rock band before they morphed into what they eventually became. But Mark was kind of in on the ground floor uh, with relationships with, uh, with both Vinny and uh, Dime back then in the days, you know? Yeah, those three uh, hair metal Pantera records, they're actually not bad. No. Now, I also got a tainted view a little bit because Terry Glaze is doing the leads and I love Lord Tracy, so and I love Terry Glaze's voice. So I actually I know people are gonna send hate mail, but I actually like that Pantera versus like the real Pantera, but that's just because it hits my bang zone a little bit better. Yeah, well yeah, you're you're a little bit into the melodic rock thing and and I completely understand that. And listen, I had projects of the jungle long, long, long before Pantera became what they were to become. I had that cassette, Projects in the Jungle, and I used to pass it off as new Def Leppard <laughs> way, <laughs> way back to some of my friends because it was sort of in the vein of high and dry or something like that. It didn't, you know, I wasn't comparing it to Pyromania or uh, Hysteria or anything like that. But 
a really good solid stuff and uh, he's even had a history with you, you and I kind of joke that all things start with kiss, but he's even had a history beyond the fact that Gene Simmons produced some of the keel records, but he's had this history with even Ace and uh, Peter Chris as well, right? Yeah, he wrote songs with Peter Chris. I have yet to find those songs. I couldn't find those songs or whatever he wrote. I don't know that he wrote it kind of thing. The A songs, Five Card Stud, is a slamming classic. Yeah, and we talk a little bit to him about uh, some of that uh, co-writes, but uh, why not? Let's play a little Five Card Stud right here, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, that's on my I'm on the way to Vegas playlist. I love that song. Uh, and then, you know, he's got a history with Gene because Keel's got a history with Gene. That was automatic and almost a forced marriage, if nothing else. We make a joke later in the interview. What, nothing with Paul? Like, he don't like you or what? Well, we talked about it a little bit in the interview. To me, he's even got more of a KISS connection than sometimes some of the people that are actually appearing at some of the KISS expos that they have each year, you know? Yeah, even those solo albums that uh, Mark released, I think one was called like Guest List. He had Bob and Bruce Kulik on that album. So the Kiss connection runs deep. You know, all things start with Kiss. That's why. Yeah. Some other cool things that Mark did that we didn't get a chance to talk about in the interview was he wrote and produced songs for the 96 Summer Olympics, uh, which the 96 Summer Olympics were here in Atlanta. So he had uh, written and produced uh, songs as well as uh, use some of the songs from his publishing company for some of the athletes profiles yeah first of all i had no idea about that yeah. but then second it continues to remind me that there is music everywhere 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 from elevators to tv shows to events to anywhere you go there's music and it always amazes me that there's some of these guys from the 80s and 90s that were absolutely talented musicians and never got credit for how talented they were is supplying some of that music that people absolutely love or don't even notice it's there. Yeah, with for sure, without a doubt on that. Probably the biggest thing that has earned Mark Ferrari a living way beyond 
you know, his days in Keel or Cold Sweat or anything like that is he formed one of the most successful music publishing companies in the world and ended up selling it to Universal Music Publishing. To me, this probably allowed Mark Ferrari to actually drive Ferraris in his real life. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was an interesting idea. I think what drove the idea was there was friends of his coming to him you know, with a movie idea, TV idea, whatever, and they've got music that they want, but they don't want to have to license the original composition from XYZ person because it costs a lot of money. So it's like, hey, can we need music in the vein of power pop? Can you help us with that? And then he would write original compositions that were power poppy and then license those and sell those, but that allowed him to sell that to several different places instead of just that one movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting, his story. And we were talking to him most recently because they're re-releasing the Cold Sweat record, Breakout. They put out one record back in, what was it, early 90, I think it was. And it was right as the turn of, of music and everything. And they did some really successful opening slots on some good tours uh, but then they returned to L.A. and uh, kind of everything at the record label started happening. Their A&R guy, MCA, got fired and, uh, you know, the band just disbanded shortly after. But that record breakout uh, was a pretty solid uh, melodic hard rock record. Would you agree? Totally agree. And I guess the story goes, Oni Logan was supposed to be, was originally the lead singer and he left to go to Lynch Mob and that delayed the whole record. And, you know, we've talked about it before stuff that released in 90, 91, 92, if it releases in 87, 88, 89, it gets a total different spin on it because the music was so hot in that time period. So I think we should check out, let's check out four on the floor. That's a great song. All right, let's play it. Take 
Yeah, and I mean, that version is from the uh, new, uh, I guess, remastered Cold Sweat record, so it sounds a little bit brighter uh, than the original version. But yeah, I mean, just a solid, solid rock record. Cold Sweat, I mean, they essentially, they had everything you needed back in the day. They were a good-looking band, some good tunes, you know, so like you said, two years, all the difference in the world, a year and a half, all the difference in the world back then. Yeah, and you know, we I think we talked to him a little bit about why re-release it now. I don't think he's planning some major tour or anything. <laughs> I think honestly, he's just doing it for the fans because he hears a lot about that album and that band, and uh, you know, it was a passion project of his. And uh, I'm glad that he's re-releasing it. Yeah, I mean, listen, we've already talked about it. It certainly isn't a money grab for him. I don't think he needs the money. And he's not putting cold sweat back together. They're not going on the road, although maybe he'd uh, entertain the thought if they were willing to do like some Monsters of Rock cruises or uh, some M3 festival dates or something like that. You know, probably be kind of cool if they could do that because he still plays with Keel every so often. You know, Ron Keel is concentrating on the Ron Keel band and, and Metal Cowboy and all that stuff, and, and that's great. Uh, but every once in a while, Keel uh, hits the Monsters of Rock cruise or one of these festival dates here and there, and Keel will play uh, Keel tunes, and Mark uh, is still part of that as far as I know, correct? Yeah, our favorite bands of that era are really in three buckets right now. It's either there's the guys out there that are touring the world and continue to tour. There's those, those bands that do fly in dates and will play, you know, maybe 50 to 80 dates a year, just flying in for the weekend, hit a couple of markets, fly out. And then you got this third bucket that just plays basically festivals and cruises. And although Ron is dabbling in all of that, I think the band keel is really in that third bucket. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, listen, out of uh, out of everybody in Keel, both Ron and Mark are very hardworking individuals that have their own things going. Ron is doing the music DJ thing for the uh, radio station and is hard at work and has the Ron Keel band and is out there doing festivals and expos and everything else. So that guy hasn't stopped nonstop hardworking guy. You and I have both run into him several times in this uh, past year. And, um, you know, just he impresses us each time. And then uh, meeting and talking to Mark Ferrari and digging into his story, uh, this guy is just a success story, period. And it starts with music, but it doesn't all end with music. The guy's an investor. He's an entrepreneur. He invests in companies. He has this whole publishing thing. So this is a successful businessman. Mark Ferrari is in the business of rock, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure how many of our guitar heroes invested well, sold companies, wrote books. I guess I just mentioned Hagar. Basically, Hagar did the same thing, but there's not very many of those out there. So it's kind of nice to know, like, not everybody that was in the 80s and 90s just kind of fizzled and went away. That some of these guys really took advantage of their, you know, so-called celebrity or their talent or whatever and were able to uh, rope it into something else. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to play one off of this Cold Sweat record that I like quite a bit. This is a song called Love Struck.
Yeah, see, great song. I mean, this cold sweat just did not get an opportunity. No, and hopefully they will. Hopefully the people, you know, that are in our our group will go out there and rediscover this record and pick it up because it's available now. The re-release is out there. You can find it. Uh, we'll tie all this information into the show notes so you can just click on the link and go to purchase the record. You'll hear him talk about it towards the end of the interview, and we talk about it in each and every one of our episodes. Get out there and support live and recorded rock and roll music, people. This stuff needs our help. That's why we do this podcast, to raise the flat for a good hard rock and roll. And uh, Cold Sweat is an example of that. Go pick this record up. Support the band, even though they're not out there playing. You can still support him by picking up the record. So... Anything that you hear on this show or anything that's available to you, that's how you can support it. Go purchase it. Yeah, it's great stuff, and it's important that we save our music because um, there's not another Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath coming down the pike. So if we don't do something, our music could die in the next generation, unfortunately. Dude, that's not altogether 100% true. There is another Led Zeppelin. They're called Greta Van Fleet. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't Those care. guys are great, but I don't know if they're ever going to be, you know, <laughs> regarded as the classic the Zeppelin is. No, I don't know that we'll ever see that kind of stature from any band back in those days. You know, I'm halfway kidding, but, uh, and I don't mean that to pick on that band because I actually enjoy that band. I've said it many times before, but. Anyway, so this interview with Mark Ferrari is a really fun interview, but it's not a lengthy one, and he's just done so, so much more. We encourage you to go to his website, which is markferrari.com, and it's Mark, M-A-R-C, not with a K, but with a C, and, you know, go check it out. We didn't even talk about the fact that he was in Wayne's World, uh, both Wayne's Worlds, part of uh, Crucial Taunt, right? The fictional band. We didn't even get into any of that stuff, I don't think, in the interview, did we? I don't think so. We didn't talk a whole lot about his kids' books. Yeah. Because he might end up doing another kids' book. I doubt he does another like Rockstar 101 type book, but my guess is he has another kids' book in him, though. Yeah. So not only is he a great guitar player, not only is he on film and TV, not only is he a producer, a songwriter, but he also writes books. <laughs> so <laughs> what what doesn't Mark Ferrari do is the question. Mark Ferrari, the rock and roll renaissance man, so to speak. Yeah, it was a great conversation. So yeah, definitely check his stuff out because it's worth the time. Yeah, and everything will be in the show notes so you don't have to worry about writing this stuff down. Just go to the full story and the show notes at growinguprock.com and you can pick up his story and all the links to all the music and uh, his website and etc. But I think that's uh, that about says everything we want to say. The rest is just going to be said in this interview with Mark, and uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy our conversation with Mark Ferrari. Okay, all you rock and roll animals out there, this is Mark Ferrari of Keel and Cold Sweat, and you are listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast. Crank it up! So welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast, Mark Ferrari. Mark, what's going on? How you doing, brother? Uh, we're doing okay out here. It's been a crazy couple of weeks for me with the fires here. I was evacuated for four days, nearly lost my house. But uh, fortunately, we're fine. I have some friends that were not so lucky that lost their houses, so I am counting my blessings. But it's been pretty interesting here between the fires and the rains and everything else here that goes on in Southern California. It's just uh, another day in L.A., as I like to say. <laughs> but uh, we're getting through it. That's good to hear. Hey, what we like to do with most of the guests that we have on the show is we like to dig into kind of the true beginnings of, of where you start with rock and roll and music in general. So what was your introduction into rock and hard rock music? Oh, man. Well, I started playing guitar when I was nine, and... Uh, 
back in those early days, it wasn't rock and roll stuff. It was just the basic stuff. But, you know, as we all grow older, you know, into our early teens, you know, we get exposed to uh, music that older kids are listening to. You know, in my case, I was always hanging out with older kids. I actually formed my first band when I was 15, and I was a leader of that band, even though they were guys in the band three, four years older than me. But I started listening to the classic rock bands that influenced so many people in my generation. Obviously, Kiss was a big influence. They were the first concert that I saw when I was 14. Ted Nugent, obviously, was pretty big those days. Uh, Led Zeppelin. Do you remember what the first album you bought with your own money was? Well, yeah, it was a Beatles album. I think it was. I think it was the Beatles. Let it be. Uh-huh. Uh, I must have been about ten or twelve. You know, I had allowance money and stuff, so that was probably the first, you know, pop album that I bought. And you know, of course, some of the bands I just mentioned prior, Kiss. I remember buying Kiss albums pretty early on. Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. Those were all bands that you know really defined me as a as a rock fan and as a guitar player. So I got bit by the rock and roll bug pretty early on. <laughs> you guys call your podcast Growing Up Rock. Of course, uh, I wrote a song called Raised on Rock on one of the Keel records, and that was me. Uh, those lyrics were, uh, you know, very uh, autobiographical. You know, I was exposed to rock music very early on. <laughs> That's very cool. And so obviously you were a big music fan, as you said, at an early age, because I know how I was and, and uh, when I was growing up around rock and roll. Were you ever that kid like myself? Did you ever wait outside backstage or at a tour bus? Of course. Of course. What was it for you? I was just wanting to be in the, in the presence of these great rock gods, these people that I, you know, just wor- literally worshipped, you know, and thought the world of. Back in those days, you know, we didn't have the internet, you didn't have exactly. videos. You know, you, you only saw your bands either on the, on the record, you know, the physical album, yeah. or a magazine, you know. So, you know, to see them, you know, see the, the real live human being, you know, walking in front of you, it was, <laughs> it was uh, you know, it was like the second coming of, uh, you know, Jesus, <laughs> you know. You know, I think that's something that's lost, Mart, because that's that's something that I got into a conversation. You're a little bit older than me, but not by much. And so uh, I recall back in those days when you're waiting for your uh, guitar hero or, or singer or whatever, um, that when you saw them, it was the mystique as opposed to nowadays where you can see everybody at all times, basically. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I remember uh, I met Joe Perry when I was 17 or 18 years old. That was a big one for me. I met uh, a couple of the guys in Judas Priest in the summer of my 18th birthday. 
summer when I was 18, I remember I saw a bunch of concerts yeah. and uh, remember meeting Priest. I got like backstage passes to Priest and, you know, there walks the guy, you know, there was the guys in Priest, you know. I, also, when I was 18, I met Michael Schenker, you know, who's like one of my all-time, you know, favorite guitar players and really has influenced my playing probably more than anybody, Michael Schenker. I got to meet him uh, over at the Marshall Amp Factory when I was uh, over there when I was 18 years old. And, yeah, you know, just like meeting some of these guys, it was just like, it, like you said, it was just like, it, it was like meeting a deity, you know. Yeah. And um, I'm not, never forget it. And that's why, you know, I'm approached by someone try to reciprocate and be cool and, you know, spend time with people because I know it means something to them. So I'm still a fanboy too. You know, I still go and, you know, try to hang out with guys that, that have influenced me. So it's awesome. funny how that, uh, you know, it can circle around like that. Very cool. So as you start writing songs, like when do you feel, when did you first feel legit? Like, was it a, someone at the label or a friend or another musician that hears something you're writing that says, Hey, hey, hey you got something. Well, I think maybe, you know, the validation is the first time you write a song that makes it on a record, you know. And for me, that was, uh, you know, the first song I I uh, got on the Kiel album, Laid on the Law record. So that was Born Ready, was I think the first song that I brought into Kiel that got recorded on a record. So I thought, you know, that was my validation, you know, because Ron's a great rock writer, and you know, he wrote most of that first Kiel album. I think some of those songs might have been left over from Steeler. You know, I submitted that one song, Raised on, uh, they all have rock in it, you know, <laughs> Born Ready. Uh, I submitted Born Ready, and, you know, Ron liked it. We put it on the record, and, you know, for me, I guess that was maybe the first time that I felt, you know what, I can write good enough now to uh, get a song on a, uh, you know, on a real record. Put us in a room with you and Ron Keel in a songwriting session. Did you guys ever write together, or was it always a separate thing? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that Ron and I always had this competition going on. And again, I really looked up to Ron, right? You know, when I first got in the, in the band Keel, you know, Ron had already had the Steeler album out. He had a name for himself, and I was I was a nobody, you know. But on subsequent records, what I would do if I hadn't finished the song myself, I would give Ron, you know, demo of of my you know track, and sometimes he would write lyrics to it. The Right to Rock was a great collaboration. You know that story. You know, I, we were recording the Lay Down the Law album, and we were getting sounds in the studio. We were just running, you know, we were, we were getting level checks and everything. And he said, you guys just play something, and, you know, let's, let's get levels. And I started, you know, started in on the Right to Rock, and the band just kind of jumped in. And that's how that one happened. Ron wrote the lyrics, but it was pretty much my music on that one.
on the next record, The Final Frontier, I wrote three or four songs on my own, and then a, a couple, case in point, Arm and a Leg, which was pretty much you know my track, and Ron wrote the lyrics. So we, it went both ways. We both wrote separately, and we both collaborated on stuff. We didn't we didn't really like sit in the same room too often. Like mm-hmm. you hear, like McCartney and Lennon did. You know, they actually were physically there in the same room, uh, bouncing ideas off each other from the beginning. That, I don't recall that too much with with our thing, but everybody's different, you know. I mean, there's different yeah. writing processes for different uh, for different folks, you know. Well, now you just email across the country a file. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't have that back in the in the yeah. early '80s. No. You know? I think that's a good thing, truthfully. Yeah, and I think the competition is great. I think it ends up bringing out the best in both of you. But then here comes Gene Simmons is getting involved, and he ended up with three songs on the record like was that part well, of the plan the thing with gene was we only had a short period of time to work with him okay and we had just finished recording lay down the law we recorded that in june of 884 up at prairie sun right and then we get signed and we have to go right back in the studio with gene because he's only got this window of opportunity and we just finished recording you know the lay down the law album we didn't have a lot of material left over now, the Right to Rock came out of that session, as I mentioned. Ron had a couple other ones. I think it was Electric Love and uh, there's one other one. We redid a couple of songs. We redid You're the Victim and we redid Let's Spend the Night Together. You know, we, we were kind of left with the situation where we we had some holes we needed to fill. And that's where Gene came in with the, with the three songs that we did uh, of his, you know, Easier Said Than Done, so little time, so many girls, or so many girls, so little time. And the third one, uh, my least favorite of the three, was one called Get Down. So, you know, there's maybe a couple of throwaway tracks on that album, but that was, we had to move quick. So that's really the main reason why we covered those three Gene, Gene Simmons songs, is we just didn't have a lot left over from the Lay Down the Law. We had literally, you know, eight weeks after we finished recording one record, we're back in the studio on another one. You know, it's crazy. So. Wow. That's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Mark, as somebody who was uh, inside the music business for a while when uh, I was much younger, I got to tell you, I love this kind of shit. So tell me about Rockstar 101, a Rockstar's Guide to Survival and Success in the Music Business. You know, a lot, a lot of folks don't realize that there's more business than music in the music business, right? Yeah. Frank Zapp, that was Frank Zappa's quote. So I, I can't take credit for that. He said there's more business than music in the music business, and he's absolutely right. Music makes up, you know, the most important part of it, but it's the smallest part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so many times young uh, musicians, young artists are so eager to, to you know, to, to follow their dream and want to sign, they'll sign anything that's put in front of them. What they don't realize is that if they get into a bad deal, it's so hard to get out of it. You know, like I say in the book, it's kind of like getting your foot caught in a trap. You know, it's easy to get in, but it's hard as hell to get out. And so many careers have been either delayed or, you know, irreversibly harmed by getting into a bad deal. And the other thing that I said in the book is it's better to have no deal than a bad deal. And that's absolutely true. It's better to be free of a bad deal than being in a bad deal. So, uh, you know, throughout the years, I've always been asked questions by, by folks, you know, how do I do this or how do I put together this partnership agreement or, you know, what should I be looking for in a manager or how do I build my team and all, kind of, all that kind of stuff. So I just finally decided, you know, after researching and finding out that there's never been a book written by a major label recording artist that deals with the business end of things. And, you know, you know, being in a band is different than being outside a band. So I, I can, you know, I, I have the, the foresight to, to know, for, you know, firsthand what it's like being in a band and what kind of business arrangements go into being in a band and what kind of things you're expected to sign and what kind of team you're expected to build. So I decided to share my knowledge with those that are coming up so they can avoid some of the pitfalls that some other folks were not so fortunate to avoid. Keel, we're lucky. We, you know, we, you know, we had good management. We had good agents. You know, I don't think we were really ripped off, so to speak. But then again, you know, we were careful that we did hire attorneys to review our contracts. You know, we didn't just sign anything blindly. So that was the impetus for writing Rockstar 101. 
pressed in its second pressing now. It's, it came out quite a while ago. It's, I think it came out in 2002. Yeah. Uh, and so there's probably some things that need to be updated in the book, but the, the basic information that's in it is, you know, still valid, you know. So, and I'm happy to know that it's helped uh, a lot of young uh, musicians throughout the years. What would be the one thing the 50-plus-year-old Mark Ferrari would tell the 18-year-old Mark Ferrari today? Well, a couple things. Uh, don't <laughs> sign anything with don't sign anything without having it reviewed and don't eat anything with mayonnaise on the road. Those two things. Uh, those two things will save your life. Those two pieces of advice. <laughs> Both uh Steve and I, we love the Cold Sweat record and it sounds like it's going to be re-released here. My favorite song off the album is Four on the Floor. I think I might have seen you guys live, maybe open for Badlands. Could that be right? That is true. We did some dates with Badlands. I remember them being in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, we did several yeah. dates with, with Badlands. I'm pretty sure we did San Diego, and we might have done Orange County. Or you know, Again, we're rolling back the clock 30 years almost. But by the way, the Cold Sweat album is out. It's not about to be out. It is out. It's available release now uh, on 20th century uh, media so it's out there uh real excited about it um i know the cold sweat album you know it's kind of a cult classic a lot of folks uh, really like the album a lot of folks didn't get a chance to buy the album because it kind of came and went pretty quickly and so i'm real happy that it's out now fully remastered it sounds great i i, I ab the old CD with the new CD, and the new CD is just amazing in its clarity and it really pops through. Uh, the remastering really helped a lot, really really brought out a lot of the uh, dynamics of the band. And there's a brand new 16-page uh, booklet. Some, uh, you know, all the photos are like from my personal collection and some other photographers that were uh, kind enough to donate the pictures to us. So these are never-before-seen pictures of the band in the booklet. That's awesome. So for a prolific songwriter, Mark, because you've, you've written all this stuff, you're doing compositions for TV and movies and all this stuff for your bands seem to always do a cover song. Was there a thought process regarding these choices? Oh, you know, well, Keel, Keel did a bunch of covers, right? We Keel, did, Cold uh, Sweat? Yeah, Keel did uh, the Stone song, and we did, what else did we do? We did a, we did a few. Matter of fact, we actually demoed up um, Hold Your Head Up by Argent, which uh, never saw the light of day. Or it might have been on the Keel Six, uh, Keel Six Back in Action record. Uh, yeah, Because the Night obviously was you know a big a big hit for us. Uh, that cover, Fog Hat Tune on the Cold Sweat record. We just I just love that song, you know. And for me, covers you know it's it's not like we couldn't come up with another song. It's just that we wanted to put our you know our spin on songs that we liked. I mean, look at Van Halen, man. Van Halen is one of the greatest American bands of all time. They did a bunch of covers. You know, the You Really Got Me, You're No Good, Dancing in the Streets. Yeah. All my favorite bands did covers. Zeppelin did covers. The Beatles did covers. Aerosmith did covers. You know, you shouldn't be ashamed to do a cover. What you're doing is you're putting your own stamp on something that came out before you. So uh, call me a cover boy. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you realize that maybe being a musician wasn't going to get you the length of career you were looking for? I mean, 80s rock music is littered with stories of musicians of the heyday that snorted all their money or gambled it all away, but you seem to come out the other end with business ventures and et cetera. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I would have loved to have had a longer playing career, you know, but there's certain things that are just beyond your control. You know, there's certain things that... Uh, no matter what you do to you know, try to stack the cards in your favor, that certain things are just not going to go your way. Now, with Keel, we had a pretty decent run at it. You know, four records, major tours, you know, major videos, great press, best new band, and Circus, and Cream, and, and Hit Parader, you know, well, not Hit Parader, but I think uh, Rock Scene Magazine, Metal Edge. You know, we beat out... This is true, guys. We beat out in, in Metal Edge magazine. We beat out Iron Maiden and Bon Jovi for best new band in 1986. All right. So you know, Keel had a pretty good shot at it, but for whatever reason, you can sit back here and pontificate and you know be an armchair quarterback and say, well, this didn't happen and that didn't happen. But sometimes the universe just doesn't work in your favor. With Cold Sweat, 
it was maybe a little different in that timing really played an issue. That the record came out in 1990. It should have came out a year, maybe a year and a half earlier. And by the time 1990 rolled around, you know, we started seeing, seeing you know, a shift away from commercial hard rock and into the grunge era, you know. And that really hurt us, I think, that year and a half. That we didn't, you know, we originally were trying to get the record out in 1988. And uh, Oni left the band. That put us back a year and by the time we got Roy and, you know, went back into pre-production and had to schedule the album, the album didn't come out till June of 1990. So uh, I can honestly say that that really hurt. That was one of the reasons why, you know, Cold Sweat maybe didn't have the uh, trajectory that it could have had. The other thing was, you know, we were on a label that really was not known as being a good hard rock label. We took, we took a gamble on signing with MCA. You know, we knew that they weren't the the best rock label, but you know they were based in L.A. We were based in L.A. Keel was on MCA. A couple of the guys, you know, at MCA knew me. They said they were going to work the record hard. That had something to do with our decision to go with MCA. Our management was based in Los Angeles, so we we thought it was just better to have, you know, all our uh, ducks in a row by having everything based here. But you know, I'm not bitter about anything. You know, I've, I've had a you know great career. I knew it was time to kind of figure something else out after the Cold Sweat band, you know, kind of fizzled apart in early 91. And after the Nirvana album hit later in 91, I just knew it that, you know, it was going to be really tough for me to, you know, try to get another record deal in that environment. And it forced me to do something else. And that was the impetus for me uh, making a segue into writing and producing music for film and television. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue. Can you explain Master Source a little bit more? The music is generalized type original compositions. Yeah, Master Source was the first music library in the industry to feature songs. Okay, so there, there were music libraries that served the film and TV community before Master Source, but none of them had you know, contemporary pop music that sounded generically similar to the big artists of the day. So nobody was producing music that sounded like it was, you know, it could have been Kiss or ACDC or Van Halen or Journey. Nobody was producing music that sounded like it could have been Garth Brooks or whoever the big country artists were or big R&B artists or the big rap artists. Nobody was doing that. And so my idea was, you know, okay, I can, you know, Instead of you guys spending $100,000 on a Garth Brooks track, I can create something for you that sounds like it could have been Garth Brooks. It's not ripping Garth Brooks off. We're not ripping off, you know, individual songs here. We're just creating music that's in the same generic ballpark of guys like Garth Brooks or whoever it was. So that was my idea, and my idea exploded like a rocket. You know, for the first few years, I didn't have any competition, and I was like the go-to guy for all the studios, Paramount and Warner Brothers and Disney and Sony and uh, everybody else. You know, if they needed a piece of music that sounded like another artist and they didn't have $100,000 to pay for it, I was the guy to get that song done for them. So my business grew and grew over the course of 15 years. I sold it to Universal in 2007, and then I worked five years for them running the business that I sold to them. And these days, I still have my toes in the water with my old gang, but I'm not a universal employee anymore, but I'm an outside producer that continues to add to the library. So I love doing it. I love having one foot in the music world and one foot in the uh, film and TV world. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right. So Gene produces some of the albums. You write with Peter Chris. You wrote one of my favorite Ace songs, by the way, Five Card Stud with Ace. Mm. You've even worked with Bob and Tommy. No Paul. Like, you don't like Paul or Paul doesn't like you? Uh, no. no. Uh, yeah, it's funny that, I, by the way, I wrote... Some songs with Gene, too, which we demoed way back in the day, just it never went anywhere. So, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to write with three out of the four original guys in Kiss. would love to write with Paul. <laughs> Truth be told, I think, you know, I like Paul's songs better than Gene's in general. You probably, you know, I think Paul and I kind of draw water from the same well. But, yeah, as you guys know, my, you know, my uh, history with Kiss in general goes back pretty far with 
Gene producing the records and then having the cut on the Ace Freely album and, you know, writing with Peter. And it's just kind of, it's just so amazing when I think back to the 14-year-old kid that goes to see Kiss at the Niagara Falls Convention Center. And little did I know, you know, uh, eight years later, I'd be, you know, in the studio with Gene. You yeah. know, it's just, uh, it's one of those tail wagging the dog stories. By the way, my company, Master Source, also provided a lot of music for the early Gene Simmons family jewel shows, too. So kind of another, <laughs> cool. uh, another loop that's come around. <laughs> Pretty interesting. You know, Mark, you could actually take part in all these KISS expos going around. You got a bigger connection to KISS than some of the people that actually appear there, right? <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd be flattered if anybody asked me to do it. I'd I'd be happy to, you know. Just I just haven't got that call yet. Hey, real quick before we let you go, because you got this call coming in, can we do a quick lightning round with you? Okay. Hope this don't come back to bite me. <laughs> it won't come back to bite you. I promise you. It's all fun. All right. Okay. Song you wish you'd wrote. Back in the saddle by Errol Smith. <laughs> Non-rock metal guilty pleasure. Uh, Sarah McLaughlin. Radio, Sirius XM, iPhone, or streaming? Oh, I guess I have to go with streaming. I spend more time doing that than the others right now. Favorite song to play live? Of mine or anybody's? Anybody's. Oh, uh, probably, uh, Sin City by ACDC. Awesome. Vinyl CDs or cassettes? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, I guess I gotta go with vinyl only because there's, so much more of a, a tactile uh, relationship with vinyl. You're holding it in your hands. You're looking at the album artwork. You're reading the lyrics. You're, you know, you got to go with vinyl. You're an investor and an entrepreneur. So, company you wished you'd invested in. Oh boy. Well, uh, you know, if you got in at Bitcoin pretty early, you'd be doing pretty good right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of people, you know, understood that until, you know, until the price on that was uh, pretty high. Yeah. Book you wish you'd have wrote. Wow. That's a good one. Um, I haven't written uh, an autobiography yet, so maybe uh, maybe it's that. <laughs> I bet you got some good stories to go in there. Yep. Name your two Desert Island albums. Two albums you take to a desert island with you. Uh, man, you're killing me here. Well, my, my all-time favorite record, I've always uh, said, is Aerosmith Rocks. I mean, to me, that is just the perfect un- record. Nothing can top that record. You know, it just, uh, you listen to it time after time, it still rocks hard, start to finish, great songs, great production, great playing, great attitude. Everything about that album is is just head and shoulders above any other rock album. Uh, And if you're going to force me just just for two, I may have to go with ACDC Power Age. That's the the other album that I just play over and over and over again and just... You know, it still still makes me just just want to crank it up and hit the gas pedal, you know? Literally, dude, those are two perfect albums. And so now it's the last final question for you. You can only buy one car. Is it a Ferrari or a Porsche? Oh, come on. You got to know that answer. It's got to be a Ferrari. I'm, I'm, on my, I'm on my second Ferrari right now, man. And, and uh, it's not going to be my last. I can tell you that. I had so, to ask. So uh, definitely between those two brands, uh, Ferrari over Porsche. You ask 100 guys that, you'll get 50 that'll say Porsche and 50 that'll say Ferrari because there's definitely Porsche lovers out there too. And there's nothing wrong with Porsche. It's just that I've always... You know, I've always wanted uh, to be able to drive a Ferrari and, you know, I'm lucky that I'm able to own these great cars. That's awesome. Do you have anything final? Yeah, I just kind of like to thank all your listeners for supporting music in general. I encourage everybody to keep supporting music, going to live shows, make sure you're buying your music and not stealing it. And also for, you know, supporting commercial hard rock, you know, because commercial hard rock, the 80s stuff never disappeared. It just kind of took a nap for a while, you know, but uh, while it was taking a nap, there was always pockets of uh, fans out there keeping, you know, keeping it alive, keeping it uh, in the back of their minds. And so I have to thank all the fans for their continual support. Uh, Go out and buy that uh, new Cold Sweat album at Rock Start to Finish. Some really good uh, songwriting on there, good playing, well-performed, well-crafted album. Very proud of it. Still stands the test of time, in my humble opinion. And thanks again for all your continued support. And Mark, thank you for joining us, giving us your time today. 
Of course. All right. Look forward to uh, getting the link uh, when it's up. We will absolutely send it to you, Mark. Thanks so much. All right. Take care, guys. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.